This is Jason Wheelock representing Compass in Atlanta and the Wheelock Group, and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of The Real Talk Podcast. I'm here today in Atlanta, the Buckhead office, meeting with my friend and guest, Jason Wheelock. Wheelock, which is I before E, W-I-E-L-O-C-H. Buckhead Atlanta is one of Atlanta's most affluent neighborhoods and shopping mecca of the South. It owes its unusual name to the 19th century local general store owner, Henry Irby. Henry killed a large deer and prominently mounted the buckhead on the wall of his establishment, which became a popular outpost for locals and travelers. And today, I'm here with Jason, the founder and CEO of the Wheelock Group, and also a founding agent of the Compass Atlanta Market, where we opened our first office about four years ago. Jason and his team feature a combined 60 years of experience and over $300 million in sales of homes in Atlanta, Georgia. Prior to Compass, Jason was an agent with a few other brokerage firms with over 14 years of experience in the business. A few more facts of Jason, he studied managerial finance from the University of Mississippi, go Ole Miss. Climbed at Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, which is a 19,000 feet in vertical, that's crazy. Yeah, that's, I mean, I've been to Breckenridge at 12,000, 19,000 is just out of this world. Uh, he's traveled to 30 countries around the world. He's a fan of the Atlanta Braves and also runs his own podcast called the WG Podcast, which you may find on Apple and Spotify. Please follow Jason on Instagram at jason.wheelock, again, I before E, and his pod channel, the WG Podcast. Jason, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, What's Todd? going on? How are you? I'm great, man. I, I feel like such a so honored to be here on your show. I think you were one of the probably the early podcasters at Compass. Yeah, I don't know if there's any other agents at at, at least in New York City. I don't I don't know if there's another channel, but uh, it's it's an honor and a privilege. I started this podcast primarily to be able to have the opportunity, like I said earlier, with you to sit down with interesting people and have a decent conversation to really get to know them. And the only way to do this, and obviously to your audience, is it's long-form audio. It's long-form media. So let's get the listeners to get to know you a little bit. So I'm going to answer, I'm going to say a couple words. I'm going to say maybe 10 words and uh, try to answer them quickly with just about one to two words. Now, if you have to say three, that's fine. No big deal. But, you know, right off the top of your head, based on your experience and who you are, what are the thoughts or words that come to your head when I say the following words? Okay, ready. Social media. Time consuming. <laughs> Zillow. The realtor's enemy. <laughs> Atlanta Braves. World champions for a couple more weeks. <laughs> Ole Miss. Full of disappointments. <laughs> COVID real estate in Atlanta. Not quite normal, but pretty close. MLS. MLS. That company we pay way too much to. <laughs> City in a forest. Well, definitely Atlanta. We have trees everywhere. Outcast or ludicrous? Ooh, Luda. Okay. CeeLo Green or Waka Flocka? CeeLo Green or Waka Flocka? I'll go with uh, Waka Flocka. <laughs> Rob Rufkin. The next mayor of New York. <laughs> Compass CRM. A work in progress. Compass Marketing, or the marketing team. Who's my, uh, who's my marketing advisor? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, and last but not least, the Compass Atlanta Retreat. Really exciting. Really exciting, yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you that, on that. Uh, go back to the, your uh, Zillow, Zillow as in uh, the, the realtor's enemy. I mean, they're not supposed to be the enemy, right? They're supposed to help you in marketing your properties. They use your data to help you connect 
right. with buyers. I mean, right. how how are they an enemy to you? Let, and, and I, I want to clarify that because it's not that Zillow is the enemy. I think that realtors, it's the enemy of your business, if that makes sure. sense. Yep. So the way that I look at it is we have a certain economic model that we live in uh, to make this business work, right? Sure. So for instance, if you're going to be in an individual agent who decides to build a team with productive agents under you, right? Like a true business. What happens is you have to be able to justify all that, right? You're making this financial investment, time, energy, sure. and, you're, and you're putting your trust in other people. And sometimes you're leveraging or maybe not massaging the relationships you had as much because you're handing some of that business off. So there's, there's a true risk to running any business, right? right? right. And so when you do that and you're paying 35% to another company, it destroys your profitability. And it comes to the point where I think many agents across the country are probably not making much more money at the end of the day than right. they would if they were individual agents. And if you're going to build a team and build a business, why would you want to make the same amount of money with five, 10 people working alongside you than you would on your own? What, what do you mean by that 35%? How did you get that figure? Is well, that, this least, is different than New York City. So. Okay, right. So I'm not sh I think New York City uses Street Easy, street easy. which that's is our, also owned by Zillow. Right, but there's no, I don't know, the, 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 is that a referral fee that you're talking about? 35%? We pay 35% per transaction to Zillow if we work with them. Wow. So, and that's interesting because I don't know how your market works, but in my view, I think a lot of agents use it here as a means of cash flow. Yeah. Um, but it's if you actually dig into the numbers, long term, it's a broken model. Right. Okay. Because you're already given it's a broken third. Broken for who? It's broken for, for real agents. For agents. Okay. Yeah. Not for not for Zillow. No, it's for Zillow. I'd say it's. Cash I mean, cow. that has been the number one reason they've been successful is agent partnerships. Sure. Okay, understood. I had no idea that uh, maybe that's unique to the Atlanta market. And again, I don't really use the that model in New York City, so it's, it's really kind of foreign to us. One thing I, I do have to say is in New York City, there are a lot of rental listings. We represent a lot mm -hmm. of landlords. A lot of brokers have rental apartments from owners that want to rent their condos out. And it's in, the charges that they give us is $7 a day for each listing. Mm -hmm. And just in Manhattan, from anywhere between... Uh, September till the end of the year, there's going to be about twenty to twenty-five thousand listings total on that website, rental listings, right? So that's uh, so that's a per day figure. So they're making about eighteen thousand dollars a day, just oh, on just in Manhattan. And then if you add that in Brooklyn, Brooklyn is usually a little bit less, usually about twenty thousand. So they're making about fifteen thousand dollars a day on Brooklyn. So you add that up, just between Manhattan and Brooklyn, they're making about thirty thousand dollars, thirty-two thousand dollars a day about $200,000 a week. So, you know, about almost uh, almost $850,000 or so a month. We're that's in a, the wrong that's business. a huge cash cow. That's a, I mean, we're in the wrong business. You know, to become an aggregator, that's a, that's a cash cow. Uh, just by having a simple data feed. It's not like they're doing anything extra to, to that. So they act as the MLS there, basically. They are, no, for, for the, they act as the MLS for the, facto. for the, uh, consumer. Yes. Mm -hmm. For the consumer. Um, Got it. Okay. and because there's not a lot of co-broking in the rental market, a lot of rental tenants do not find the need to use a real estate broker to find a rental. They could just go online and go direct. Uh, there's no, there's not a lot of, uh, incentive for real estate agents to be worried about, Oh, I need to find this tenant in an apartment. So mm -hmm. they, they usually just go on street easy. Right. And they find us. 
Right. Which is, it's, it's, an inter- it's a totally different market. But I did not know that's interesting about the 35% on a sale. That's a huge chunk. Per sale. That's a that's huge right. chunk. And that's before the compass cut or the house cut. So you know whatever you're making, it's it's before the compass cut. Then before it's, the compass cut, then it's the agent cut. Before yeah. you know it, how do you even survive It's on 20 that? bucks an hour. Right. Okay. Exactly. So not even maybe. Go All drive right. Uber at that rate. You that's know? right. <laughs> so next section, the quick questions, just to get the readers to get to know you a little bit more, please answer the following questions, just a few, a couple sentences. Doesn't have to be a couple words, just a couple sentences. So uh, first question, where are you from and how long have you lived in Atlanta? So I was born at Northside Hospital, which is considered the baby factory. I believe it was at the time. <laughs> America? Yeah, at the time, and I think it still might be the largest maternity ward in the US. Okay. Um, and it's right up here on the north side of town. Um, for those of you local, it's where 285 and 400 meet. Uh, and it's just ITP, which is inside the perimeter. And that's a depor- uh, an important distinction, Doc, if you're oh. from Atlanta, if you're inside the perimeter or outside the perimeter. If you're from the city, like truly, you're inside the perimeter, which is the circle 285. It's like Paris. Yeah, exactly. It's like a loop that yeah. goes around. It's like the Beltway 495 and DMV. That's if, right. you're, uh, if you're from the Burbs, you're OTP. So I was technically born ITP when I was young, moved to the Burbs. Like many people in Atlanta during the 1980s and 90s, in really many cities across the country, people were flying to the suburbs, right, um, and leaving urban areas. So I was raised um, out there, and then I went to school out of state at Ole Miss and then came back here, got started in the real estate business the first year, out of college. So basically, outside of my university days, I've always been here. You're a lot like the, the other top agents that I met at Compass, not just in New York City, but other markets. Their first job is essentially in real estate, whether it's out of college or not even in college. Some agents, some of the top brokers didn't even go to college. They went straight mm-hmm. to real estate at 18 years old. So what made you decide to do that rather than I'm not sure what the typical graduate of, you know, in Atlanta, what they're looking to do right outside of school. But mm-hmm. real estate is kind of an ambiguous job. There's, it's, it's not hourly. It's full commission. There's no health insurance. At 21, there's, I'm sure you didn't really come with a lot of money in your bank account when you graduated at 21. I mean, what's the, what was the thought process there? The way you describe it, it just reminds me how crazy we are. Today. Yeah, that is a crazy, it's a crazy thought process. You know, the irony of how I got into this business talk is that I graduated in 2008, which if you're a finance major, that was the best time ever to graduate from college. <laughs> and the spring of my uh, senior year, there was literally a guy in my uh, finance classroom with a Bear Stearns mug saying, come work at Bear Stearns. This is like March, April of 08. Oh, the irony. So by the time I graduate, the banks are starting to really kind of teeter. And by fall, so I got my first job in finance. And by fall, that job literally, when you're sales managers who've been in the business 30 years in your industry, and you're a rookie, you're saying, we don't know what to tell people. Yeah. You know it's over. So I immediately started looking for something else. And I thought, look, the real estate market's crashing. I've got no money, no job. Why not get a real estate license, right? Yeah. So... <laughs> No money, no job. (laughs) You know, why not just take a commission-only position? So the seriousness behind it was I felt there was actually an opportunity, and I encourage anyone who's thinking about this business to consider that just like investing, buying high, selling low, the best time, I think, to get into our industry is when 
it is a tough time because in 2008, 2009, the board of realtors in Atlanta went down by 50% membership wise, literally cleaned house. So for a young agent like me, I saw an opportunity to come in and pick up a ton of folks whose realtors didn't even exist in the business anymore. Right. So the competition was fairly low. And I, like you said, I had nothing to lose. So I had not lost my ass in the crash. Mm, I gotcha. gotcha. Um, so I was fortunate to live at home for a little while while I got myself off my feet. They say, they say that the, uh, the best businesses are born in a downturn. Right. Or in a recession. So totally. that's actually, you're right. Yeah, you have nothing to lose. You're basically starting from scratch. And what a perfect time to start from scratch when a lot of people are leaving the business. Uh, what do you think about today, just uh, in a couple sentences, about the tough inflationary markets that we're seeing, and especially in Atlanta? Yeah, it's, it's a really tough topic because if I had a crystal ball, we wouldn't be doing this. Um, we'd be sitting somewhere else. But I believe we went through a period of time where uh, the government certainly was promoting home ownership by keeping rates low. And I think we could get into a whole other podcast yeah, on, sure, 100%. on rates remaining low for too long, possibly. Yep. Um, but we were in an environment talk, and I think you and many agents experienced the same where it was unnatural to have 20 offers in 24 hours of going on market, yeah. you yeah. know, markets going up 20% per year. It doesn't make sense. And so I think while it's easy to sit back and say the second half of 2022, things have slowed precipitously in many markets and to a great degree in Atlanta, it's not necessarily something to fear because normal markets are healthy. Balance between buyers and sellers is healthy. And I think as, as a country, many consumers have been programmed with this idea that, oh, if the market's not that hot, there's something wrong right. because it became the new normal. Um, and so I think it's healthy what we're going through. The one thing to look for is, is the Fed going to be overly aggressive with rates? I think that's the question is if, if their monetary policy is going to uh, hurt real estate more than it should. I think if I had to predict, though, 2023 is going to be a flat year. I think it's just going to be more balanced market. I do think rates will calm down at some point, And I think customers should pay attention to where the deals are at right now. And you might have to swallow that pill of a higher rate for a moment. But ultimately, long term, there's some you know, there are financing options to help curb that as well as there's going to be refinance options. And I think we're going to be discussing arms more, which became a kind of a dirty topic after 2008, 2009, adjustable rate loans. So I feel I feel confident for real estate long term. We're in a, and, and I know hopefully I'm not too long winded with this thought. We're in a position where this country has two opposing forces. One of the leading statisticians in the business and I were just talking about this. You have government policy causing a supply problem and a demand problem. The feds are causing demand problems with rates and inflationary uh, policies, and then local governments have been causing supply problems for years, and that has to do with zoning and building regulations uh, and really the lack of availability of, of land to build affordable housing, right? So these two things are opposing forces, and so what's going to happen is I think supply will remain low in spite of high rates. Mm. Right. And that's what I would say to listeners. That's what you need to look for is the fact that it may be more expensive for a while, but we truly have 
pent up demand in this country that didn't exist in 2008, 2009. Those were artific that was artificial demand created by phony financing. This is true, truly millions of people that want to buy. And it's just a tough period that we got to push through. And, and you see all those memes about uh, the millennials and Gen Z uh, buyers waiting for the market to crash and it's, a, it's the body of a skeleton, right? So yeah, you're right. The, the, uh, the, the prices actually may not necessarily dip to the levels that people are hoping to, to dip uh, during this uh, interesting period for, uh, mm -hmm. for, for the, with the rates. Uh, next question, Facebook or Instagram and why? Oh, wow. Neither. <laughs> Neither. Okay. Interesting. Um, I mean, you're fairly active on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. I, I am. You know, I think social media is a, is a great tool that has allowed, when I talk to my friends about social media, I get, I, I've had the pleasure of keeping up with so many more people than my dad's generation did yeah, by 100%. virtue of, you know, you either were like close or in touch with people or like my father used to told me, I haven't spoken to Steve in 30 years. You know, and because it was either you kept a phone oh. relationship and went and visit each other or it just didn't exist. So I have had the pleasure of knowing so many people from my young and college days or friends that have moved to other places that I've been able to communicate with, as well as a client database that I can give them quick and seamless updates. Mm -hmm. So that part is really good. I think, though, that um, there's a love-hate relationship that I have. Um, and I'll, I'd say I'd pick Instagram yeah. over Facebook okay. because uh, I think there's more of the younger generations that are on there. And I think more people are spending more time on Instagram overall. Yeah. And I just, I do it because out of necessity and because I want to keep in touch with people, but not because I'm in love with it. Right. And I think the human relationship of picking up the phone and talking to my A people and talking to my past clients is truly my preference at heart. Gotcha. Yeah, the old school way. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, pick up the phone like your dad did. Like my dad did. <laughs> and he still does. He'll call guys that he hasn't seen in 20 years and catch up with them. Isn't yeah. that crazy? No, I mean, that's great. You know, that's great. That's the, the, the real human way to do it. Right. Uh, do you have a role model in real estate? And if so, who and why? You know, that's a great question. I feel like I've had the pleasure of uh, meeting so many uh, smart people in this business. And my first broker at Keller Williams, a guy named Sean Damon, I don't know if he'll ever listen to this call. Sean Damon. Sean Damon. All right, shout out um, Sean. Or listen, yeah, it's this pod. He recruited me when I was very young in the business. I was initially at a different brokerage, a small shop, but he truly opened my eyes to building a business. Mm -hmm and building a team and not thinking of it as a salesperson, but thinking of it as this organization, right? Okay. And so I always looked to him because he sort of directed my path and, and really put me in touch with the right people, the right coaching to come to where I'm at now. Okay, good. Yeah, everybody needs someone, especially, we're all very influential at the beginning, especially when you're younger, right? Yeah. So yeah, it, it does. We're impressionable. I feel, the, I feel the impact, you're right. The impact in your younger years with somebody that's been in the business, that knows the business, uh, is definitely felt and huge. Uh, do you have a morning routine? I do. I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm weirdly a, a creature of habit right. as well as extremely spontaneous. Can you be <laughs> both you of be those both? things? And it depends on what day and time. All right. So I have a habit of waking up at a similar time every morning. And given that I don't have uh, kids and given that I don't have a lot of hair to deal with, <laughs> 
I am 30 minutes out of bed to showered and ready to present myself. And then I come to the Compass office and I will potentially sometimes stop at my favorite diner, White House Cafe. If you're ever here in Atlanta, it's a Buckhead breakfast spot that's been here since 1948, uh, run by a Greek family. And it is just such a cool, it's like a power breakfast in Atlanta. You'll see like a U.S. senator in there, or, oh. but it's like this unassuming kind of little old school diner. Or I just come straight here and always starting day with coffee. Mm-hmm. And then I like to do the things I learned, you know, when you're first out of school, you don't really know anything about your workflow. Never. And Especially it's, in real estate, out, yeah. of all, out of all industries, right? Right. Yeah. And if you didn't go into corporate America, you really don't have any semblance of training in that, right? That's right. So I discovered a few years in that when I got up in the morning and did the mentally taxing stuff before early afternoon, Smart. I get 80% of my productivity in the first half of my day because I just am so efficient. And then I kind of let the dominoes fall to the afternoon, right. appointments with people, calls, follow-ups, things I don't have to like think really heavily strategically right. about. 100%, yeah. yeah. I mean, your brain is fresher as soon as you wake up. And then in my social life, I'm just super spontaneous. Like anything goes. <laughs> Happy hour in five minutes? Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you have a weekend routine? When you're not traveling or when you're not, you know, when it's not a weekend like this. Like if I'm here in Atlanta? That's right. Depends on the season. Atlanta... We all work weekends, so... We do, yeah. <laughs> My routine... Fortunately, I don't work as many weekends as I used to because I, I do primarily listings now. But if I'm not working, you know, Atlanta's definitely a city of seasons when it comes to social routines. In the fall, people love college football here. Yeah. So it's pretty typical on a Saturday in the fall right now for me to be gathering with friends around the TV somewhere old friends and watching the big games of the day or even traveling back. I go to my alma mater at least one game a year to have a little reunion with guys. Um, the belt line is very popular. I love spending a Saturday or Sunday. It's this urban trail that goes through the city. That's, you know, probably the hottest thing in it. Is Atlanta. that the one with all the artwork? Yeah. There's a lot of like, like street art, street graffiti art. Yeah, and such. Graffiti, yeah. yeah. I haven't, I plan on check it out. Yeah. yeah. I plan on going. So, and then in the spring here is like festival season, right? But Atlanta's kind of, you really want to get outside in the spring and fall here yeah. because it gets really hot yeah. in July. So if you're outside in the summer here, you're at the pool. Sure. And then in the winter, it still gets cold. You see? Um, so you're like, kind of inside. It was, like, what, 40, it was like 50 degrees this morning. I mean, it right. wasn't too bad. But Not yeah, too it was bad. It definitely chilly, yeah. But when January, February comes, it's, cold, it's huh? like 20s, 30s. <laughs> Even though we're in the south. Yeah, so <laughs> spring and fall are really the best times in Atlanta. Gotcha. What's the uh, Ole Miss uh, football game like? Mm. I mean, Gosh. you got some legends coming out. you got Dawson Knox, Deju Brown, Evan Ingram, Archie Manning, Eli Manning, right? Love the qu- – you're a New York guy, so you uh, appreciate oh, it. No, I'm a D.C. guy, actually, born and bred in – Oh, that's right. Well, not born in Japan, but – you know, raised in the DMV area. That's right. So I'm a diehard Commanders fan, formerly known as the Redskins. That's right. That's right. Okay. But, well, you know, I like I follow the NFL. So you guys have you guys have some some. I mean, the school might might be the games might be quote unquote a disappointment, but you got some you got some good players coming out of that school. You know, it's a sensitive topic, Todd, because we were seven and zero going into Saturday, and we lost to LSU. Yes. This is the second time in my adult life we were seven and zero and lost to LSU. Ah. So we had a disappointing weekend, but I'd say. Going to an Ole Miss game is all about the tailgate. The Grove is probably the number one tailgating spot of any university in America. The Grove. The Grove. Mm -hmm. And by the way, this is 
probably not too biased because most SEC fans would agree mm -hmm. that Oxford, Mississippi is the best tailgate experience in America. So we make up for losing the games. And our saying is we may not 100%. win every game, but we never lose a party. Never lose a party. Okay, tell me about that the tailgate again, the Oxford? The Grove, the which Grove? is in Oxford, Mississippi. That's Oxford? where the school is. It's Grove. a 10-acre field. It's literally Outdoors. tent city with 50,000, 60,000 people. There's, they set up almost like road signs in the fall like so you could find where your buddy is it's and, fairly organized oh it's so organized you can't set up a tent until the middle of the night the and night before are the game. tents run by frats or are they run by restaurants it's a variety you'll yeah. have fraternities that have tents there's alums that have been tailgating in the same spot with groups of people for 40 years mm. and they sort of have like an unofficial claim mm. to a spot so there's all these unwritten rules about how to tackle setting up in the grove on game day but it's a tradition like no other and it makes up for many of those this is a separate podcast that i'd love losses. to start and just talk about football college yeah, football me day. too that's awesome <laughs> that's awesome maybe one day i'll be able to visit but yeah i mean come going, for a game i mean man. i mean having the opportunity to play alabama and lsu and even the, was it the Razor Hogs? The, the, Arkansas, Arkansas, the Razorbacks. Razorbacks. <laughs> Razorhawks. Razorbacks. We would do barbecues awesome. and like roast a whole pig when we played Arkansas. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So that's your weekend, Richie. I know we went a little bit too long on that. Sorry. Right. Just a quick question about the, the Varsity. Uh, apparently, that's the world's largest drive-in restaurant. Mm -hmm. uh, it serves more Coca-Cola than any other establishment in the world. Mm -hmm. And Coca-Cola, fun fact, is also another Atlanta creation. It is. Which I did not know. So how was the food there at the Varsity? You know... Not as good as White House Cafe. Yes. I would say the Varsity is a tourist spot at this point it's in history. <laughs> like, if you're from Atlanta, you don't say, let's you go to the go. Varsity. Oh, okay. It's like a Times Square for New Yorkers. Right. Okay. But okay. we should serve more Coke than anywhere in, in the world. Yeah. That's really cool. On a given cool. day. Is it one of the original Coca-Cola where you, like, pump the... Right. Have you ever seen that where you like the pump? The, it's like the Coca-Cola concentrate comes out. Oh it looks no, like it's, a thick, it's thick liquid. Yeah, no, it's just the. It's, it's carbonated. Exactly. Yeah, okay, yeah. Got it. Okay. In fact, so many. I don't realize. I don't think many people realize how many companies were founded in Atlanta that they use every day. Um, yeah. Well, well, give me a couple. Well, it's CNN, Home Depot, Coca-Cola, UPS, Delta, all Atlanta-based, all from Atlanta. Got it. Okay. Wow. So who knew? So that Delta Hub. I took Delta coming in, taking Delta going out. Seems like this is a big Delta Hub. My friend just uh, just got transfer, transferred here, and he has a uh, his company just upgraded him to Delta Gold or Delta mm -hmm. Platinum. So it, it makes sense that uh, the, the Delta presence here is felt. And the largest airport in the world by volume every year. And by volume, I, that's what I heard mm -hmm. too. It's a couple football fields big. Yeah, the and over I think 120 million people a year pass through Atlanta. Uh, I got a lot of steps in. I'll tell you, uh, coming in here. <laughs> So uh, another final quick question. Uh, can you just plug a couple bars or restaurants in this area that you like to go to that, you know, let's just say locals like to go to. Right. That perhaps myself and our colleagues and our friends would also maybe have the experience or the potential to uh, visit this week. You know, it's, it's interesting because Atlanta's food scene is highly underrated and it's very international. It's, it's funny because everyone will come and say, where can I get fried chicken? That's like the de facto thing. But that's thing. hot chicken's a national Tennessee thing, though, no? Well, yeah, I think the hot chicken and waffles, but fried chicken or just southern food in general, a lot of people will ask for those spots. But Atlanta's transformed so much. Yeah. Um, it's not just hot chicken and fried chicken. Exactly. Anymore. You can yeah. get anything. And I unfortunately will leave a lot of things 
out here. One or two is um, but Howl's is my favorite steakhouse. Okay. It's a fun spot here in Buckhead that's been around 30, 40 years. And I'm talking New York quality steak. It's, okay. it's phenomenal. And it's great to go and have like a social type of night, okay. right? And I'm going to plug an area of Atlanta. Okay. So Buford Highway has for years been considered the best stretch of international food in the United States. And the New York Times, I think the Wall Street Journal have written about this. It's a four to five mile stretch Mm -hmm. just outside the center area. And you could literally get Korean, Indian, Bangladeshian, Mexican, Colombian, Venezuelan. I'm talking anything under the sun you want. And it's run authentically by people from these countries. Mm And you can get food for like pennies on the dollar, and it's like top quality stuff yeah, without the ambiance. Right. Yeah, so Buford Highway. That's awesome. Okay, great. Thank you. So, just going into some deep dive of questions, you know, you had the special privilege to be the founding agent here in Atlanta, Georgia. Top agents typically are set up fairly well at their previous brokerage, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's and the people that are not in the industry that's listening to this, you know, we get marketing dollars, we get really nice house splits. Based, you know, right. meaning that the broker taking less of a commission per deal. Uh, you get great office space. You might get street credit in the office. Like, oh, look, it's this number one broker, you know, Jason walking by and I get to see him. And some people like that, that vanity, I must say. So and I'm always fascinated by our team of recruiters. We call them strategic growth managers, SGM, who show the ability day in, day out to convince those top 1% of agents to join. You know, what was your story joining this brand new, I mean, four years ago, we were still a private company. We're still fairly small. Atlanta was one of our earlier markets. So it's not like we were established, especially in the South. We were not really that much established except for maybe Miami. So what was your story joining Hubbis when we were still kind of a no-name brand back then? Yeah, so I think I told you pre-podcast, but coincidentally, he went to Compass in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so he was there before you? Yeah, because the San Francisco yeah. market was an earlier market. That was market. an earlier market, that's right. Yeah. And he just said, he got me going to this company and thinking about it and telling me how exciting it was. So the story is I come off Mount Kilimanjaro, as you mentioned earlier, and fly back to Atlanta. I'm literally coming back and I learn that Compass, well, through Xander, the recruiters are here. So I meet with Robert Revkin. Um, and the SGM team like days after this climb and I maybe I was in a haze and that's why I signed who knows but it was truly I've never been somebody that needed you know and everyone has their own motivations recognition is not what's most important to me what's important street cred is not the most important to you no uh, I, I think it's I want to put my team in the best position to succeed at a company that'll give them that alongside what we do I also think that Compass is just very forward thinking. A lot of the things they talk about are things that we've been thinking about for years, right? Sure. Uh, I think that they are, of any brand, who is really trying to do things outside the box in this industry of the major brands. Sure. And so I think we were just attracted to that. And the marketing dollars, it's like I told the SGM after I signed, I... (laughs) 
I probably would have come in spite of all this stuff anyway. Doesn't matter. You know? right. It was a nice bonus, nice sure. cherry on top. But I don't think any agent should ever sign with a company because they're incentivized to. There should be a greater reason because if you're signing for incentives, you'll be able to find those any couple every couple years when your contract's up. Somebody else is going to do that. But it's a short-term gain incentives are like what's the big picture what's the long game you're playing and i think that's what we felt compass was was a, a place that we could really see some runway mm -hmm. okay when you started what 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 did the industry look like for you in atlanta and how has it evolved since coming on to compass and experiencing the tech and the platforms that we have on the back end I mean, when I first started, it was foreclosures, man. Oh, wow. Yeah, really? so 08, 09. I don't even know what that, I've <laughs> never experienced it. Yeah, yeah, I don't think New York went through that, but no. I, a lot of my sales were uh, buyer representation of foreclosures and short sales my first two years in the business. Yeah, because best, it, best time to buy a short sale, huh? Or right, or foreclosure. Yeah. It, those were the deals that kept moving. And yeah. so if I wanted to attract buyers in a market where people were like, I want to get out of this, that was the way to inspire people to come to the table. It's like, yo, when you're never gonna get something. Never. And any of my clients that bought back then, trust me, they're super excited. They, they did. made a killing. Exactly. Yeah. So that was how I, I I sort of amped up in the industry, and then my business became. Was the tech pretty much the same back then? With well, you guys have the MLS out here. So. We had the MLS, but I'm telling you, in 2009, we were still in some cases faxing a contract. Oh, wow. Do you, I mean, are, are faxes still used in other agencies, you think? Or? I, I haven't used one in years. Yeah. I, but e-signature was not necessarily the consensus way of sure. doing things in 09 quite yet. Even like Adobe e-signature or there's no DocuSign back then. Right. Yeah. Wasn't quite Pony Express, but yeah. you know, the iPhone had only been out, what, two, three years yeah, true. when yeah. I got oh, into wait. business. That's hey, right. We've gone through such tremendous evolution and change. Blackberries. That's right. That's so what much it was. changed since I've entered the business. Yeah. Okay. And then what was the second part? Uh, of and, then, and then how has it evolved since, I guess, you know, being here at the, com at the company? And obviously, our tech has evolved in, uh, significantly in two years. Yeah. Or, I, mean, you, I mean, you've been here for three, so our tech has evolved significantly. So. You know, what is it like for you today? Yeah, um, you know, tech is has made business more efficient. Um, I think across the board, I don't even know where the fax machine is, thank God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think the Compass dashboard, while of course, like any newer company, there are kinks and things to work out to like see through the final vision. I love how slowly it's tying everything we do together whether it's the search and collections for our clients, the business, the, the transactions being done within the platform, the CRM. And I think it's the seamlessness, the vision is slowly coming together of not having five subscriptions yeah. to do the same thing, yeah. right? We still have a couple so things that, we're, that we pay for, yeah. but we pay for less things and use less programs than we used to. And then like what happens is it's you don't have as much mistakes with information crossover and sharing and it's, it's just more more efficient. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand so. that. Yeah, I know we're you're a busy man. I don't want to take up too much of your time here, but a couple more questions before we end here. Uh, you've been in the business long enough. Can you share us some of your knowledge as far as advice for those that are brand new in the business, those that might be thinking about coming into the business, and also again, a, kind of a two part question here. You know, those that are any advice for those that are you know people like me, ten to fifteen years in the business. Yeah, um, you know, I think some things never change, and I would advise anybody that 
knowledge and education is important, mm -hmm. but ultimately the people that are most successful in this business are going to be the ones who talk to the most people. Mm. Okay, um, that's for, this is for newer agents and yeah, older agents? Is for this kind for of newer agents. Yeah. I mean, every week is a race against time. Think of it as you're on a timer when you're brand new, right? Unless you have some you know, massive fund behind you. But if you're just like, if you need to make money. Unless if your daddy's a developer or. Exactly, yeah. if you need to make money, the you, like, you're on the clock. It's probably a two year window and that's great that you took that CE class and like <laughs> learned that new appraisal strategy or whatever. Yeah. But like, here's the thing: it doesn't matter what you know if you've got nobody to talk to about it. That's right. So don't be a secret agent, and talk to as many people, and don't be afraid at reject of rejection. And that's even harder for young people because we're not used to talking to people yeah. face to face. Yeah. I think that the younger folks are having even more of a struggle with what it actually takes which is that old thinks school TikTok, approach, maybe, yeah. thinks a TikTok yeah. video is going to sell a million dollar listing. That's right. And the last part of that is just don't believe what you see on TV. It is not selling Sunset. It is not HDTV. This is a tough business. It is. We are not just opening doors and collecting checks for people. <laughs> um, and I think there is kind of that, let's call it misnomer, yeah. if you will, right? Yeah, yeah. And then for, I think for the older Asians, it's like, this is the stuff I'm reminding myself, right? Which is, we got to remember that relationships matter, yeah. right? So we've been kind of these order takers the last two years. Get your clipboard out. What do you want? Let's go find it. Make an offer. And we got to get back on the phones and anchor those relationships. I am just as guilty as many agents of post-COVID not being like out and about and talking to as many people as I used to because we've kind of been living in these bubbles, right? So I think it's going to be imperative to pick up the phone and don't, you know, don't be like, embarrassed that you haven't talked to that one guy in your database in two or three years. I think a lot of folks want to hear from us. And if we approach them the right way, it's not bothering them. It's we're a service provider. We're, you know, add value to people. Do you, what, what about any advice for those that have been in the business for 10 plus years, 15 plus years? I mean, we have Nick Svensson here from Santa Barbara. He's been in the business since the, you know, people used to show, he used to show homes yeah. on horse carriages. You know, back in right. the day. Yeah. You know, he's, he's been around. Like, yeah. we're around. <laughs> you know, they, they, they're, yeah, horse carriage and a whip and, you know, take the buyers around town in Santa Barbara. You know, what kind of advice do you have for those, that yeah. generation? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's ex Same thing, exactly or? it is we've got to remind ourselves that the fundamental things don't change. Don't be, I think when markets get tough, don't be too good or don't be above doing things that you fundamentally had to do in the first, right. Mm -hmm. It's like, pick up the phone and talk to that customer you haven't in a few years. Don't be afraid to like host an open house or even host one and shadow one of the young, uh, young agents on your team. Don't be afraid to like, you know, get out there and just preview. do the stuff, right. Preview yeah. homes, know your stuff. The basics. You can't just be a CEO at the office and hope to do transactions. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, the deals never fall on your desk, right? Right. They don't so, fall from the sky. Exactly. Well, Jason, thank you so much. You're a wealth of knowledge. Again, the founder of Atlanta here. I really appreciate your time. Please, not, again, not of Atlanta, but the, the, yes, that's right. <laughs> Please follow Jason on Instagram at Jason Wheelock. Again, I before E, Jason dot Wheelock, and you can follow his podcast as well, WG Podcast. Jason, thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to spending the rest of the week with you in Atlanta. Thanks, Todd. All right, take care.